0: welcome to the mr tv podcast on today's episode we are talking with brian bannigan eleanor leary the co-creator of Stickin' around we talk about how the show got off its feet brian's storied career and the importance of perseverance so sit
1: back and enjoy the show
0: brian bannigan eleanor leary welcome to the mr tv podcast (laughs) i got it finally (laughs) <laughs> so on another episode we had spoken with the other co-creator of sticking around robin Steele. uh kind Lovely. of about the yeah we talked to him uh, recently actually just yesterday and okay. um we spoke to him about the sort of origins of the show uh but okay. he mentioned that you've been working on this idea long before you had met him with a producer named barbara corday so what was that yeah. idea
1: oh actually that's not exactly right but okay. you know It's sort of like telephone game, you know. Um, Barbara Corday was a producer. She created Cagney and Lacey. And Mm -hmm. uh, I was um, merging into production as acting work started to wane, which sometimes happens when you're near 30 in L.A. and you're a woman. And um, so I got to think, well, I got my rent to pay. I got this and that. So I started merging into production. And Barbara Corday, working with a friend of mine, Suzanne was doing what they call a pilot presentation at that time. Okay. Um, uh, and it was something I like called Sex and Whatever in America. It's a documentary, huh. whatever. And um, so my girlfriend Suzanne and I were assigned to interview actually some rather strange people in and out and around L.A. And uh, then one of the things that they wanted to do was have some kind of cartoon or something that would bridge segments. And so I was sort of tasked to find that. And I had seen Robin's brilliant stick figure theater on MTV. You're insane. The cellar's the safest place. I'm telling you, they can't get in here. And I'm telling you, those things turned over our car. And I just was like, oh, my God, what this guy could do with a stick figure. And it was so edgy and it was fabulous. And so I called him. I thought it was a woman, actually. I called him thinking it was a woman. Mm -hmm. And it turns out it was a man. And uh, I I said, uh, I'm doing this. Explain the situation. Would you be interested? And he absolutely was. But then the pilot presentation wasn't bought. I think it was for ABC. And so as soon as that project was dead, I contacted Robin. And I said, have you ever thought of doing something long form with your stick figures? And he said, well, no, not really. What could you do? I said, little something called the Sticklers, this <laughs> insane family living in Dysfunction Junction. Everyone's divorced and the kids and they could create their own cartoons. Mm. And that's sort of how it happened. And the first time I called him, we, we ended up on the phone for, I think, two hours just bouncing ideas off each other. He's brilliant. I'm sure you were impressed with that brain of his when yeah. you spoke with him.
0: So, I mean, those original ideas, you know, for the show, I, I mean, it being called, you know, the Sticklers. And now like it's being sticklers. called Sticking Around. Yeah. It, mm. How did the, I guess, the transformation from The Sticklers, the original ideas, um, where, you know, I, I'd heard from Robin, it was a bit about, you know, Stella and Stanley living in a home with Stacy, kind of having her going from one side of the house to the other. Mm. How did it go from that to being Sticking Around, the show that we got?
1: Well... The name in particular, because I, I love the Sticklers, which was the original name, and mm-hmm. we couldn't use the Sticklers because some person had copyrighted the Sticklers based oh. on Post-its or something. And so in order to have the name Sticklers for a title, I guess you'd have to buy this woman out because she was saved. You know how the people buy things and they save it online or they co- copyright it or do something?
0: And yeah. They'll never
1: do anything with it, but you have to buy them out for whatever. So then Robin brilliantly said, because we were thinking, I just love the sticklers. And you know, when you love an idea and you don't want to let go of it, but -hmm. we had to. And he came up with sticking around and how it came about. It was basically as far as the family and going into sticking around. um, Well, when we first spoke, I just always imagined, you know, what would happen if kids could create their own world, you know, could, that have some control and what they drew in their minds and what they felt in their heart could come to life and how fun that would be. And um, so that's just sort of how it went from there. And because my childhood was, was rather unusual and I don't ever really think Stanley and Stella sort of lived in the same place in the place that I grew up was called the Prince garden apartments in Tucson, Arizona. And, it was these kind of ramshackly apartments and people lived across like a gravelly driveway from each other with six, you know, small units. And so everyone knew what everyone was doing and stuff. And, and I think maybe we had Stan living across the way or whatever. I don't know if they actually lived together. I'm not sure, but they were divorced, but we didn't actually discuss the divorce. That was just kind of their life. And Stan mm-hmm. was always around.
0: Um, we'll get into those themes a little bit later. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about was there's an article from the Chicago Tribune about sticking around, uh, you know, written, I think, in 1994. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about, you know, the show while it's kind of in its sort of nascent phase. Um, mm-hmm. But they had mentioned that the idea behind the show was Stacy being kind of an art therapy. And as you talked about, you know, creating her own world with stick figures and, you know, trying to control the world around her. But you said mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the case. With the show,
1: well, I never discussed art therapy, but I guess in a sense it was, um, and so I think um, I think I remember the article ages ago. But I think mm-hmm. they sort of cl- latched onto that, which made sense. It's you know, it was not art therapy for kids trying to have control or creating a life that they'd be happier in, you know. And so that's what art therapy is, um, mm-hmm. but it wasn't specifically about that. But what I think I remember reading that going, oh, that's an interesting idea. I guess that makes sense. So I didn't push back on it at all because it made sense.
0: Yeah. Interesting take from a journalist, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that journalist went through art therapy. never know.
0: never know. Never um. Know. So, I mean, you've, you've got the idea for the series, so for sticking mm-hmm. around. You got an aesthetic from Robin. You got a story. Yeah. I mean, so how did you get in front of Judy Price at CBS? And, you know, maybe <laughs> for our audience, just fill us in a little bit about who she is.
1: Well, she was and will be forever reigning as the queen of Saturday morning, of children's <laughs> television for network TV. She was amazing, and to get an audience with the queen was, you know, how many times do I have to genuflect? And mm-hmm. uh, so she, so what I did was, after we'd, we'd done, you know, put together a little video, we'd done this, and we, Robin had done a brilliant Bible. Which a Bible is, you know, pictures of the characters and the, the character breakdowns and whatever and and he had put that together brilliantly. and uh, now it's like, oh, now I got to get out and sell it. Who's gonna meet with me? because I was an actress, some say questionably, because the last thing I'd really done was chips, so it's always iffy with that. <laughs> and uh, so I who's gonna meet with me? So I called a dear friend of mine um, named Jeff Sagansky, who had been president of CBS at one time, so, he was Judy Price's boss, basically. And uh, I had met him when I was an actress in Black Sheep Squadron and he was just starting out in network T V. And we became fast friends because he's from New England as I'm from New England originally. So I called Jeff. I said, Jeff, could I guess, you know, I wanna pitch this thing, it's stick figures and <laughs> you could hear his eyes roll on the back of his head. I said, No, it's funny, really, it's a sticklers. It's this <sighs> he said, What do you want, Larry? I said, I just need a meeting. Do you think you could get me a meeting with Judy Price? I promise I won't embarrass you. It's really smart. (laughs) And uh, I've got a great partner. And he said, oh, Larry, let me see what I can do. So that's how I got in the door with Judy Price. And it it was really a mercy meeting. I mean, her former boss, who is now the head of TriStar, um, said, I've got a friend. She's got this cartoon about whatever. (laughs) So as a courtesy, (laughs) that's why she met with me, for sure, because I had no track record whatsoever.
0: Um, but I mean, my understanding is, though, is, is that meeting actually went really, really well. And you got a green light <laughs> for the was... show pretty much right away.
1: Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. It's, um, it was quite amazing, actually, Matthew. It was, I walked in, and I had the video mm-hmm. that Robin and I had put together that we had painstakingly, I'd never met Robin, we talked everything over the phone, right? So when we were putting together video, I flew to Northern California to meet with him. and. Uh, help put together all the cells, the hand-painted cells. Robin had drawn all these cells for the 30-second kind of vignette to introduce the sticklers. And so I flew to Northern California. He showed me how to paint all the cells. And uh, and then um, we had dinner, and I flew back with all the paint and equipment and about, I don't know, 200 cells or whatever it was, and hand-painted all the cells. And so then... Uh, uh, we had then that was done, then we had to choose a theme song and all that. So that was done. So what was amazing is that when I walked into Judy Price's office, we had the Bible, we had episode ideas. We had the little vignette video. But I walked in and, like with Sagansky, you'd hear her eyes roll in the back of her head when she saw me. And Robin wasn't <laughs> there, you know. And okay. uh, so I walked in. How do you do? How do you, she didn't get up behind from behind her desk? I went, oh, okay, that's all right. And, uh, I don't know, chit-chat. And then I said, well, I've got a video. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, that's good. And she pointed to the cassette, because it is in the dark ages, where <laughs> we're still using video cassettes. Right. And uh, I put it in. I'd handed her the Bible. And um, the video started to go. And it, the theme song was actually particularly, we, Robin and I struggled. What kind of theme song? We've got to have, so, have music, because no one's going to be mm-hmm. talking on it. So we came up to. I came up with the idea that a theme song from Camelot. It, my mother used to play it all the time. It was this musical called Camelot about this mystical right. place, and well, it goes something like this. So I plug in the thing, and Robin's little he put on the beginning. And now for something completely different. And we had cutouts okay. of couches and chairs and everything, and the screens blank just with that from catalogs and stuff, circa 1950, 60, 70. And suddenly the music starts and it's like okay. And out comes Stan. Pum here comes Stella bum and here comes Stacy and then it's like then it's for happily ever aftering, then here in Camelot. And on lot, Frank comes out and then bum 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 And then they all plop on the couch with a giant bowl of popcorn. And then the graphic meets the sticklers. And that was it. And then the show, everyone was quiet. I mean, Judy was quiet. I was like, my heart was pounding. But I watched her the entire time she's watching this little video. Her face didn't change at all. I went, oh, better start packing up my things. (laughs) And uh, she kind of stood up from behind her desk, leaned on the desk, leaned in, and said, I like this. Then she walked around from the desk and said, "I want this." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh." And then she said, "But not for a series right now. I'd like to see this as 26 interstitials, 1-minute interstitials in between regular regular Saturday morning programming." I was just like, "Oh my god, oh my god." She says, "How does that sound to you?" I'm like, "Oh, fabulous. Okay." <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was it. And then she said, so have you thought about what studio? Oh, she asked, are you working with the studio? I said, well, sort of looking at, at me and Robin, <laughs> and then right, she said, have yeah. you thought about what studios you want to work with? And I said, no. And she, you now she had like a spark in her eye. And when she rolled her eyes, it was, she was enjoying this in a really okay. loving kind of way. And then she said, well, of course you have a agent or attorney. Mm, no. I mean, I had an acting agent, but I didn't... Uh, oh, no. She went... And she kind of laughed. She wrote down a name of a woman named Susan Grode. Called right. her. She's the best one. And Susan Grode, as you probably know, you know, negotiated the deal for The Simpsons. But I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, oh, God, an attorney that I could say CBS recommended. <laughs> and uh, and then she gave us the list of the the uh, studios that, that she likes to work with. Right. And... Um, I didn't, I recognize, I can never pronounce it with Clasky Chuspo.
0: I think it's Klasky Supo.
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, First
0: yeah, of all, it. I
1: thought, if I can't pronounce it, probably shouldn't go with it. But <laughs> I knew, and then the bottom of the list was Nelvana. And I right. sort of knew Nelvana. And um, I just thought, gosh, maybe a place like Nelvana, because they weren't doing the edgy cartoons like the class we choose suppose, or whatever we're doing and they, they they might be hungrier plus the network wanted it already so um that was sort of it i had, i immediately got home i think i called Sagansky first to thank him and then right. um got robin on the phone cuz they didn't have cell phones then obviously and um said you better pack your things cuz we've sold this to cbs <laughs> it was hysterical so the meeting went yeah. As you say, very well.
0: So, so pivoting a little bit into talking a bit more about the show's themes and its characters, um, you know that Ch- Chicago Tribune article that I, I read. The journalist wrote that the show was a bit of, of a catharsis for you, uh, by you know humorously mirroring your quote, you know highly dysfunctional childhood. I mean, how was the show a mirror for that?
1: I think it was because I grew up. With so many different families. My sister and myself, from the age of four to fourteen, in between mm-hmm. my mother's marriages, you know, foster families, where sometimes the real kids, <laughs> and which I wasn't one of when we lived with these families, weren't the nicest people to be around. But the neighbor kids were great because I would, could be a friend to the neighbor kids, but I was sort of in the way of the kids, the real kids in their home, and um, so the neighbor kids became like the gang and sticking around the microcosm and the respite from so many other things and deep friendships, you know, and you, you know, you couldn't drag me in at night. It was, you know, this, wherever I was living, I just wanted to stay with that little group of friends. And I, I learned to make, I was very lucky. I learned to make friends and I would just, I could talk to an eggplant, you know, and I was sort of like Stacy's like that way, you know, it's like, hey, how are you doing? Um, and I guess that was it. And it was, a it was my friends outside of whatever home I was living in, whether it be with my mother and a husband or these other families, it was the way I got out. It was, you know, like I say, my respite and the kind of the oxygen mass dropping down, um, that kept me together. And I think, but I think kids do this, no matter what their situation is, I think kids create this emotional microcosm as a way of just, you know, just coping with bullies in school or just, co- you know, whatever it takes, you've got your friends. And I think it's it's um, it's very important uh, to have that, especially as kids, you have your own little place where you feel you belong yeah. and are accepted.
0: For sure. I, I mean, looking behind the scenes a little bit for the Mr. TV podcast, but we've been in touch by email and had some correspondences. Um, and we had spoken a bit about, you know, the, the show's theme of divorce where, you know, Stanley and Stella aren't together as parents and, and Stacy is is their only child. Um, but the show never really gets into talking about divorce itself. Mm-mm. And yet, you know, the characters are included mm-hmm. in, in the show. And... One thing I wanted to point out was, is as a kid, I didn't know what uh, Latchkey Kids were. Mm. Um, I just heard the name Latchkey Gardens. I thought, oh, that's a fun name. I like that name. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a nice place to live. And then, you know, for our listeners who don't know, you know, Latchkey Kids refers to a child who, you know, returns home to an empty house at the end of the day. I mean, without talking directly to the theme of divorce and say a, a very special episode where you get into it, you know... How are you able to have a dialogue about that in the show with these characters?
1: There was a time that, well, my mother was married, but both she and her husband worked. So when my sister Mm -hmm. and I got home, no one was home from three o'clock in the afternoon till midnight. And we were just there. We had TV dinners. My mom would go out. I think we do a whole thing about TV dinners, too, and sticking around We'd go out so. once a week and we'd get a TV dinner, each of us, for every day of the week. And I loved that because um, it was like, you know, they, they have dessert in them, you know. So then we would put them in the oven. We were 10, 11. And uh, that's what we did. But, and we were told we were never to go outside, but we always went outside and saw the gang at the Prince Garden Apartments, but the Latchkey Garden Apartments, Latchkey Apartments. And um, a lot of those kids had parents and everything, but we sort of didn't. We hung hung out with them, and and then uh, and we dragged the phone out so we could hear it outside the door, so in case my mother called, she never did, <laughs> but just so we okay. wouldn't get in trouble for being out. So I guess it, uh, not to make too much of it, but I think there were so many kids like that, and that was just their way of life. You know, you know, we always had food, we always had a roof over our head, we just didn't have the supervision and my sister and I were very lucky because we had the other neighbor kids. And, and we also had some of the other parents along, which Mrs. Salazar comes in down the line for me, but, um, and she sort of represents that character in, in in sticking around this, the mom figure that always is around for all the kids. Um, So we, we actually were really good kids. We didn't do anything wrong, but, and we were very disciplined um, and maybe it was a safer time, but you know, when we were living in this little weird place in Tucson, Arizona, not New York city or something where if we went outside, you could maybe much, be, find yourself in much more dangerous situations. Like now I think it'd be very scary with social media. Kids can be so not to get off on this tangent, but you can, you know, very nefarious things can happen for kids just reaching out on social media because they want to get out. I could just get out yep. within my little place.
0: With, like, people that you know, kids that you know. Maybe you know their parents. So, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I guess what's interesting for me is I was born in 1991. So when the show was on, I was about five, six or so. Yeah. And I do remember watching it. And at one point, I remember realizing that Stanley and Stella didn't live together. And I remember talking to my parents about that. But what I remember the most kind of from, you know, being a kid is... Divorce being probably the scariest thing in the world. Really? And yeah, and, and it being like this kind of specter because you you listen to I mean every parent You know every family people have arguments, right? Mm. And they argue and then I'm huddling with my brothers thinking like Is this it? Are they gonna get divorced? This is so scary With the show, I mean Stanley and Stella still have a good relationship. Mm-hmm you know, Stacy still has two loving parents. It did, you know, in a way make it seem, I mean, not that scary. It, it did kind of normalize the idea that you can have your parents be divorced and yet you can still have, you know, a normal childhood. Was was that something that you kind of intentionally put into the show or is that just a result of the the writing? What do you think?
1: Well, I mean, Robin, I, well, maybe he spoke to you about it too, but I When I was growing up, you were an alien if your parents were divorced. Because, you know, I'm Mm. 900. So, you know, in the 60s, (laughs) but I have a lot of moisturizer on, so it's okay. Uh, In (sighs) the 60s, no one was divorced. And um, not only was no one divorced, I didn't know who my real father was. I'd never met him. So, and then I'm living with, you know, random families. So I was this odd little... I don't know. Not worked out right. Rubik's cube of you know, people didn't know what to do with my sister and myself. Although we were good kids, but but when by the time sticking around came along, to be quite honest. Maybe I'm jaded in this way, or cynical. That if you were, if both your parents were together, <laughs> maybe places where I you know knew other kids, that you were you 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 were considered the alien if you had both parents. You know what I'm saying? So I just thought kids, um, they just adjust to it. You know, it's like water finding its own level. And some kids have a harder time than others, of course. And some divorces are horrendous. And, and you know, but, you know, kids are so resilient that they will seek the most nurturing place. They will seek the place they feel safe, which again gets back to the gang at sticking around. Where did they feel the safe? Where did they have the most joy? Where did they laugh the most?
0: For me, sticking around, like, my my memories of the show, my strongest memory of the show is sitting at a family friend's house while I was waiting to go to school in the morning because I would always get walked to school because... This was the the era of sort of stranger danger and, and the fear of kids being kidnapped right. all the time. Mm. Uh, so I get walked to school with another kid. I remember just sitting in their living room, watching, sticking around, eating a bowl of Reese's Pieces Puffs. <gasps> Love that. And it was just like, this is great. Oh. Like, this is awesome. And, and that's my strongest memory of, of sticking around, really. I can't tell um, you
1: how happy that makes me.
0: It was like a, a cornerstone of YTV, our, our sort of the network in Toronto's um, sort of you know morning lineup of shows and it was like that for years so the show was on all the time and i'd watch it you know nine o'clock eight o'clock i'd watch it like after school and stuff there'd always be the you know interstitials introducing the show and, and you, the show would open with that great theme song so it is a, a sort of time capsule of my childhood thinking about it I love that. So but much. it is interesting to go back and think you know there are you know you know, as you, as you mentioned over email to me, a, a bit of a, a wink and a nod to the parents as well yeah. in the show mm-hmm. itself, not just the kids. So
1: I think that's important because the thing would be if families are, you know, maybe the fam, the mom and dad, if they don't spend that much time with their kids, if they actually enjoy sitting down with the kids and watching this, how great would that be?
0: Something I want to talk about too, while we're still on the, the themes and characters are some of the characters from the show and uh specifically i, w- I want to touch on three characters okay. and the first one is dill who i think is a fan favorite and i was just wondering uh where did his character come from oh
1: my god dill well first of all the name <laughs> is an homage to because like a million zillion other people uh, to kill a mockingbird is my favorite book of all time in fact stacy oh. is kind of a combo of me and scout um Okay. And uh, but Dill. (laughs) So we're doing the auditions, Robin and I, and we're just on cloud nine. We can't believe we sold this. And now we're going to go, you know, audition the kids. And and Robin and I. But Robin was really, you know, we have to have real kids voices. We don't want adults being kids. We want real kids. And we were just on cloud nine doing this. And uh, all the kids came in and different people came up and boys were reading for Bradley. Girls were reading for, you know, blah, blah, blah. Stacy. And um this one kid came in. I think his name Daniel Goodfellow. <laughs> First of all, he was kind of a gangly kid, looked like me when I was like eleven, and it well, was not attractive, but he's a very attractive little boy. There's a little girl looking like Daniel, hmm, not good. And uh <laughs> he came in and Matthew, he just had the the lines from Bradley that, you know, standard lines. And he just yelled every line. (laughs) And Robin and I literally were tears were streaming out of our eyes. And then we'd say, okay, Daniel, can you maybe take it down a bit? Okay, no problem. (laughs) Okay. And then I think at one point, I think Bradley's line was to say, holy mackerel. And and Bradley, I think the characters are auditioning, holy mackerel. And and it came time. Okay. For Dill, old <laughs> Daniel Goodfell, he's like a, an holy yeah. mackerel. <laughs> we were on the floor. And we went, he's so not Bradley, but he's so in this show. <laughs> so we created the character, the loud kid, because every school has one loud kid. Every class does, mm-hmm. don't you think? There's one kid yeah, that's always... Yeah,
0: for sure. I, I knew that kid. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and so, and so yeah. we created Dill who is just the best, and he's always, like, had way too much sugar, and, you know, he's like, and his body vibrates. You guys, I'm gonna be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Just think about
0: it. Lawyers never stop talking. They just go on and on and on and on and on and on and we on get and on. We
1: get Obviously, Daniel's grown up now, very grown up, and, um, I just hope he hasn't become that loud guy we don't want to sit next to on a plane. But, you know, okay. well, that could be yeah. a problem. But, oh, my God, he had such unbridled joy and enthusiasm for everything. It, it's such a joy.
0: I guess, you know, that that's an interesting way for a character to sort of come to being. Um, were any other of the show's characters sort of created in that way? Like, were any of them kind of unplanned?
1: Well, I think one of the unplanned thing was the voice of Stacy, which ended up being a boy because Grace. I kind of wanted this, not quite peppermint Patty, you know, voice of Charlie Brown, yeah, yeah. but I want you know, I have a lower registered voice. <clears throat> so did Scout. And we just wanted kind of a, you know, a lower voice, not a little girl's voice. And so we ended up casting, I'm forgetting his last name. I think his name is Ashley as Stacy because it just worked. You know, so that was not you know, we just said, Well, it's the voice we want. And luckily, well, sadly, but we didn't do enough shows, but when his voice changed, we were actually worried, what were we gonna do when his voice really changes? <laughs> but um Oh, okay, right. You know, yeah. but it, it it just it was the register and just kind of the the tomboy kind of gritty thing that we wanted Stacy to be and take charge, like, come on, you know, kind of thing. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um
1: Polly um her name was yep. Polly because we had the smart kid because we basically, you know, took different characters. Every class has the smart kid. They got this kid. So Polly was the smart kid. But we, it, we called her Polly because she was polysyllabic. She used all these big words. Oh, okay. And um, that's why gotcha. we called her Polly. And then Mr. Hosen. it was every coach you ever saw, you know, athletic coach. Mm-hmm. Ms. Mobley, um, the lunch lady. We sort of named after Marianne Mobley from the Elvis movies. All too sweet, very pretty, is Mobley. But also, she was like <laughs> Sherry Lewis, and that, she'd be there, and she'd be like, "And look, it's lamb chop!" And she'd be flapping. I don't know if you remember this with flapping real lamb chops. And Sherry Lewis had a character called Lamb Chop, which was a hand puppet that was a lamb. And then characters just evolved. Then Frank, the dog with the eating disorder. You know, I said, of course we have to have a you know a dog, but That has to be, um, you know, it's, okay, get a doxin with an eating disorder. Perfect. And um, that was funny. And then the Mrs. Salazar character, because I talked to Robin about stuff and how I grew up and this and that. And there was always, you know, one mom that kind of was always around for the kids. And that was Mrs. Salazar, who I grew up with from the age of 14 to 16. And um, we really... fought for this because Robin and I wanted her to only speak Spanish to the kids and okay. no subtitles because if you say something in Spanish and then the kids do the action, kids can learn Spanish. I right. don't know if Dora the Explorer was on at the time, probably was, so we probably weren't that unique with that. But they finally agreed that, you know, that was made sense. So Mrs. Salazar only spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm.
0: Daisy, ese perro tuyo se ha vuelto loco. Mrs. Salazar, you've seen Frank. He's on a winner dog! Rampage! Um, one character too that I was hoping to, to talk about, oh. and, and it's a character I think that has a lot of heart in the show, is uh Mr. Dobler.
1: Oh, I love Mr. Dobler.
0: Um, yeah, he, he's so he's so wise and he is. you know it's 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 funny because normally you have uh you know in some cartoons you have that you know stereotypical old character who's like yelling at kids to get off their lawn stuff like that but he's just the exact opposite
1: no mr doddler was not mr mitchell from dennis the menace
0: no (laughs) why include him in the show and you know is it interesting to sort of write a show where there are really young kids and the sort of generational gap between them and another character
1: I think I think that's I think that's more insightful than perhaps we were but I think both Robin and I because again kids create this microcosm but there's all sorts of ancillary characters around that the kids depend on maybe more than their parents and right. older people are more tolerant the grandparent people uh mm-hmm. in the Prince Garden apartments there are always these people that it was in Arizona, so there was this one woman who was just so tan. You just couldn't believe it <laughs> because she laid out okay. in the sun all the time, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Her, she just looked like a saddle. But she was so okay. patient with the kids. We'd splash her on the pool. She'd put more baby oil with necurochrome on herself. I mean, she was just this little raisin. And she was a white woman, but she was a little raisin. and um, And she was so patient with the kids and with us and like oh you splash me it's okay you want a snack and mr doddler was i guess you know probably from people robin knew growing up and that woman i knew and and we used to have fun with mr doddler we'd actually have him start at the edge of a in a scene with his his zimmer frame you know his the walker <laughs> And yeah. all this would be going on, and Mr. Doddler would just kind of be in the background. It would take him forever to cross a frame. <laughs> <laughs> and he had his fez. We just loved Mr. We yeah. would just laugh with Mr. Doddler.
0: You had to walk through the snow to school, didn't you, <laughs> Mr. D? They're turned to right past the North Pole. Barefoot. Barefoot? Well, shoes hadn't been invented yet, you see. And I remember the, uh, the first episode that he appears on, he's kind of helping the kids deal with... I believe it's a dead bird uh, oh, yeah. that's in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And he, he's sort of giving them some guidance on how to give it a burial. And I think they ended up burying it in a dumpster.
1: Yeah. It's... Um.
0: But it's still, it, it's, he still gets across the, the idea of, of, I guess, respecting the dead and having an understanding of how do you, you know, memorialize something that has passed on to yeah. the next life. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I think there's so many little lessons in that where we didn't try to hammer it home and some of them just came out organically anyway. And the dumpster was another character that Robin Mm -hmm. had some fun with because when I was a kid, one of my chores was emptying the trash and it was this huge dumpster with a really heavy lid. And I was told to be, you know, because rats are around it. And so I had, you know, and so I was petrified of this dumpster. So I think in one of the, or it's in the show, but it's in one of the interstitials where it's just like, let's go. And it was like, Bradley's with me, go get it. And then the dumpster becomes this, you know, I was petrified of emptying the trash when I was a kid because I had to be afraid of the rats and the lid was so heavy and it could hurt, hit my, you know, chop my arm off or whatever. So yeah. we turned that into a character.
0: Yeah. Have you ever seen um, Home Alone?
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of like the uh, the furnace in the basement with oh, Kevin yeah, being right. uh, anthropomorphized a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're right.
0: Pivoting into something uh, a, a little bit different, um, I think I kind of have mentioned that whenever I say that, it's kind of like the, the Monty Python character. Yeah, being now like, for something, for really something different. completely different. Yeah. Um, I was hoping to touch a little bit on representation of women in the television industry, and... Um, one thing I'd mention is, and this is kind of a, a fault in my own podcast here, is that, you know, most of the people that I've spoken to have been white and male. No, and, really? You know, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. And it, I mean, I don't want to be too, like, saying fault of the industry, but it also it also is fault of myself, too. Um, but there is a bit of a dearth in the difference between the number of female creators and male creators, that are in the industry at the time. Um, and maybe you kind of get your perspective on that. I mean, in the 1990s, you know, what was it like for women looking to be in creator roles?
1: Oh, well, again, that's sort of the only creator role I was in. And I pitched to Mm -hmm. a woman who was head of children's TV, which was huge. And, um, I honestly didn't, think about that. As an actress, I dealt with that a lot, the sexism and, you know, kind of just, you know, be cute and be quiet, how's your hair kind of thing. Um, I, you know, when you say it's like you feel guilty about not interviewing more, you know, women in this, there weren't more. And it's still Mm -hmm. an ongoing battle. And, um, but I just... I just never thought of that. Sort of like when I was a kid, it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to go to LA and I'm I'm going to be an actress. I mean, it was ridiculous, but I just did it. Now, if I had been born an African-American with how I grew up, my lack of education, thinking I'm going to go to Hollywood and become an actress, the odds would have mm. been against me because there wouldn't have been the roles for me. I wouldn't have been given the benefit of the doubt. Do you understand what I'm saying? That happens. Yeah. So as far as being a creator and then eventually I, you know, a writer and whatever, um, it was interesting sort of pivot away from sticking around. Cause again, Judy Price was head of children. She was the queen. She was the queen yeah. slash King. She was it. Um, uh, so that was good. And she was also a woman that, unless she rolled her eyes like, Oh, who's this actress coming into the, but she liked what I showed her. It didn't matter. And, and then, you know, she met Robin and loved Rob, you know, it's all that. So she gave me a chance and listened. Um, and my friend Sagansky, you know, is is always, and still one of my great friends and helps me. But in fact, that's where I'm going to pivot into this other story is being a woman in a creative role, not just an actress role. How's your hair kind of thing. Um, and how old are you? That kind of thing. Um, Gansky always liked my writing because I would talk to him about stuff I'd written and stuff. As we And he became like the king of <laughs> Hollywood. And he ended up being head of Tristar Pictures. And he called me um, to be a script doctor on a film. Okay. It was called Side Out, I believe. And it had been a turnaround, which is basically Hollywood purgatory. It means this film's never going to get made. But they had spent money on developing it. And I, after four drafts, all written by men, by the way, <laughs> Sagansi said, look, Leary, I want you to try this. You've got great ear for dialogue. Do this, do that. Just, I just want you to just, here's the script. Take a pass at it. God, okay, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but whatever. So I did it, turned it in, got the green light, and uh, which was amazing. But then the day after I turned it in, it was green lit. So then... Fade Out, Cut 2, I'm going to meet with the director. And they were having a big round table meeting. And with all the executive from TriStar, this film's now been greenlit. It's got to be done. They brought in a director. And um, everyone's, it's this enormous board table, board, you know, boardroom table, big mm-hmm. oval thing. Yeah. And there's one other woman there, and her name was Jennifer, and she was Sagansky's assistant. And the rest were men, including the director. So there were like set, six men and Jennifer. And then as I'm rounding the corner to come in, I hear who turned out to be the director saying, Phew, that's the writer. Can you believe she can write with those legs? Oh. <laughs> and I rounded the corner and went, <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to get them up on the keys. <laughs> and uh, Sagansi, of course, laughs because he knows me so well. He's known me since I'm 18, 19 years old. By this time I'm 30 Mm -hmm. or something. And and he went, oh, he's this interesting man. And then at one point I was where they're going page by page of the script and yeah, I like this, I like that. And then it gets to the, you know, sex scene of the film. Not sex scene, but the romance, you know, and it was a low budget film. And I had written this thing where she's wearing a diaphanous dress and she they dive into the water and then her shear mm-hmm. and then they go and, and then there's nothing other than that but it's sensual and it's this and that and, <laughs> and uh <laughs> he after I say that he says oh yeah right okay he said I don't see where the sex is I said well no it's it's sexy it's sensual but this is a low-budget film you're not going to get an actress of you know a uh, good actress that you want to get that's you know for this budget that's going to be willing to do it it's this is sensual it's sexy it works and he said yeah brie babe he called me brie babe you handle the sensual and I'll handle the and he said effing okay. and i i went oh everyone's silent around the table and i said oh my gosh i'm sorry was i ovulating too loudly <laughs> Uh, just a woman's point of view it's a
0: really good repost there
1: it was a good one wasn't it it was one of those times you're like oh i said that i swear to god Sigansky at the end of the table on the 900th floor in century city the you know behind him the whole thing of la behind him he was taking a drink of bottled water and he did a spit take he was laughing so (laughs) hard and then this guy just looked and then yeah it just you know but it was the sexism i just thought wow you know, just you just go and go be pretty with your little legs, you know. And then he said at the end of the meeting, he said, yeah, well, Brie Babeman, I got to hold up because I guess they put him up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. We're going to hold up and pound this thing out in the Beverly Hills Hotel. And he walks out and around rounds. He says, don't even start, Brie. I said, Sagansky, I don't want that man ever coming near me again. I'll do whatever you want. I'll write, right, right, right. I'm not going near that man again. I'll get it done," he says. "Okay, it's a
0: creep. Yeah, yeah, but
1: that was that was a hey. such a I guess, readers digest convinced view of how women on a creative role were dismissed, and still, I guess you know. Um, so it was it was actually funny, and I was really glad that I, it was one of my better lines.
0: There's a something called the Canadian Media Fund here in, in Canada, and they actually set out some guidelines around. I almost to say like 10 years ago or so, where they basically said that if you want to have funding from us, and they provide a lot of funding to Canadian films, um, they said, if you want to have funding from us, you have to have at least 50% of your executive roles on a, on a show or, or anything be Love women. That. And yeah, and, and that was kind of their fix in trying to get more women into creative roles and ensuring that, you know, when you're in a boardroom meeting like that, it's not just a round table of dudes it's like many people many different kinds of people who are around a board uh, a board table like that and i don't want to say you know you know things certainly aren't you know completely fixed now um but you know that that kind of sexist language i just can't imagine it happening you know and
1: that's the difference cuz that was the 90s um yeah. late 80, uh, 90s i guess it was um yeah it was the 90s and as a woman like my girlfriend who I worked with on the, the show with Barbara Corday. And again, I was working with women. so I, mm-hmm. But we dealt with so much of that. But as women in a production, in any kind of way like that, you just had to roll your eyes. There were always these jokes, guys trying to give you back rubs. And it was just, oh, stop it. And you just, you, if you read the books about, you know, the he said, she said and different things, so much of that is true. But mm-hmm. you just rolled it, let it roll off your back some women were in much more compromising positions. I was never in a compromising position and Sigansky had my back and but it was a time where people could talk mm. like that. Sigansky never would have but you know, and he just kind of knew I could handle myself. But the fact that I had to handle myself and I couldn't react. I had to make a joke of it and embarrass him, which it did, was um mm-hmm. And that he thought it was all right to say that remark about me before I even entered the room to all this room with men, even though there was one other woman. He thought that was perfectly okay. And there were chuckles I could hear as I entered the room. I don't think it won't happen today because now people have to edit. Whether they're thinking it or not, they cannot say it. Because there will be consequence now. And that's huge. So you can't demean. You can't diminish. Because yeah. I think it was a way of diminishing women. And, and But we kind of rolled with it. Okay, I'll just jump over this hurdle again. And women are doing it. They're, mm-hmm. I mean, women have, you know, in the Me Too movement, they're doing it. And um, it, it is happening. It's a slow change. It's like, you know, we're dealing with Black Lives Matter. It's a slow change. The recognition of this is huge.
0: I think my uh, my nostalgia for the '90s will be firmly planted within the cartoons. <laughs> Maybe not the culture of well, the times. Yeah, I'll say.
1: It's just a, it's a happier time in a yeah. cartoon, isn't it?
0: <laughs> One thing I want to pivot to a little bit. Um, I was talking a little bit about mm. your career path uh, because you know we had um, talked a, bit, a little bit about you know your mm. work as an actress. Uh, you know, as a television presenter, you would worked on some Disney Ooh, properties yeah. and things like that. And, you know, then as a show creator. Um, But I mean, it's not so much I want to ask about, you know, what was it like making those pivots? But say if you are an actor or an actress who has an idea rattling around their head and the only thing they've ever done is act. But they want to become that producer. They want to become that show creator. How do they go about doing that?
1: You know, when I was a kid, they say, what do you want to do? They just work really hard and persevere, which is still true. And dreams can come true, mm-hmm. which is true. I mean, from where I came from to where I ended up being and where I am now, it's, it is true. You don't settle and don't put yourself down because there's too many people online willing to do that. <laughs> you know, you have to really believe in yourself. Now, that's an easy thing to say. But it's also one of the things that I really believe, the difference between success and failure is follow through. So if you have an idea, okay, 20 million people are going to say, no, no, you know, they're, oh, that's ridiculous. Brian, just, you know, just go do your hair, put some lip gloss on, you know, or whatever. But it is follow through. And it's, pardon me, it's, it's, it's hard to follow through sometimes when everyone's going, oh God, Brian, can't you just go act or can't you just go do this or just for anyone or, you know, just go, go to college or just take the job or don't live your dream. You have to. But you may have to work two other jobs till you get that, but don't give up on it. I remember years ago when I was pitching different story ideas, I met this, the guy, which you won't know because, you know, I'm a dinosaur. Um, you'll probably know because it's, you know, classic TV, but the man named Sherwood Schwartz, who I think he did Love Boat, Gilligan's Islands and all that. And uh, he was the producer of all that. And I met with him, I was pitching something to him and he was a, He was probably in his late 70s, and he said to me, he said, he didn't buy anything or didn't want that I had pitched him, but he was so polite and nice, Um, and he just said, but you know, you keep these, because trust me, bring it out, and you'll be able to sell it in five years, ten years, one year. Never give up on something, because the taste will change, and what's happening will change and suddenly this idea will be relevant. And he, he's, I think he's right about that. Um, uh, and it, it's just, you know, okay, write the idea down, register it, <laughs> make sure you have all your rights to it, keep yourself safe so it can't be stolen as much as you can do that. And, and then, you know, call friends. I always had, like I always joked, the girlfriend network. One girlfriend, would know, another girlfriend, no. And just, you know, just put yourself out there. Because you won't get anything unless you put yourself out there. You could say, oh, I remember my friend Doug Bahar, who was an actor, and he was on Fall Guy, and we became great friends. And, and I said, well, I'm a writer. And he said, well, I know you're a writer, Brian, but, you know, you've never really had anything published. So as soon as you get something published, you can be a writer. You've got to put yourself out there. And he was right. You know, I had to put myself out there to say this is, and especially writing and creating, but writing like articles and things and eventually becoming a journalist that I became was putting myself out there. It's like, well, I'm a writer. Yeah, no, you haven't been published, have you? Not to diminish people that write journals or, you know, but no, if you're going to say you're a writer, at least put yourself out there and be willing to accept the rejection letters and wait for that one because you know what a no is only a no until you get a yes
0: and one thing I wanted to pivot into is and it's entirely up to you if you want to talk about this but you know along with being you know a show creator actress television presenter you're also an inventor
1: oh god pop plunger yeah
0: <laughs> which is interesting yeah. um <laughs> how did how did that come about because I mean it's it's a really interesting uh thing to have within your I guess sort of Resume, think of it (laughs) that way.
1: Well, I'm kind of this weird little person, like, oh, I got bills to pay. What can I do? (laughs) (laughs) I I started um, at a a lull in my life pre um, sticking around, I started a catering company ironically the logo was it's called brian's little basket case (laughs) because i was out of my mind and i had drawn a stick figure that's funny i'd never put those two together it was a stick figure of this person with insane hair weaving a basket but it was selling um, baked goods and things because i had to make the rent so um with paw plunger it was a, a long thing i and it is a long thing, and you can edit this out, but um, yeah, okay. I was working yeah. for the dreaded Fox Network, but I was doing like the New York, um, Good Day New York show. It was Fox, but some of my stuff was on the Fox National Network, and, and I was the entertainment correspondent, but I was happy, making a boatload of money, had this beautiful apartment, loved it all, and had some fun, wasn't trying to be serious about everything, and then ba-bam, 9-11 happened.
0: Oh, okay, right.
1: And uh, previous to 9/11 happening in 19 <laughs> it's another word here, 1984 um uh, I I went to Afghanistan and reported with the I shaved my head, snuck in with the Mujahideen and wrote about Afghanistan for believe it or not TV Guide. <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Google me for a good time. But, um, so because I was trying to figure out a way I'd bought my, I bought a house. I'd bought a house for my grandmother. I bought a house in the Hollywood Hills and then all acting and sticking around finished had dried up. Brian's little basket case was only so many cookies you can sell. And so I thought, what can I do as I'm getting older? It doesn't matter what I look like. I'll just, you know, and this opportunity, I went to Northern Ireland first for TV guide, um, a story. They bought it. Um, it gave me no money up front and then thank goodness published it. And then I had an opportunity. This person was going to Afghanistan and no one knew. I didn't know where it was to be quite honest. It was 1984, 85, And, um, you know, this undeclared war and everything. And so this journalist said, I'm going to Afghanistan if you want to come along. And I said, Oh, and I pitched it to TV Guide. <laughs> my editor, Steve Gilman, went, Oh my God. <laughs> he said, Okay, again, no money up front. We'll give you a kill fee. And I went, Well, that's appropriate. Oh, and okay. um, so uh, I didn't tell many people I was doing this because it was insane. And uh, booked my ticket and everything, cut my hair like a boy. Because the journalists I was traveling with we're going to be meeting in Pakistan, uh, said, you need to disguise yourself as a boy because no women go in to Afghanistan from Pakistan, blah, blah, blah. You'll be arrested. The Soviets had threatened to kill any Western journalist. Anyway, I went there. He ended up leaving, and I was alone in Pakistan for a couple weeks, and I ended up going in by myself, coming back, got the story into print. And so that was like an epiphany for me. This is the kind of thing I'd like to do. So then I started, because of that, I started getting work as a journalist on Good Morning America. I did the Fox thing. Then when 9-11 happened, I was on Fox. I was the only person that actually had been to Afghanistan. I still had connections in Afghanistan. So I asked my producer, um, who wasn't one of those supportive women like Judy Price um, or Barbara Corday, and I said, look, I'm the only one who actually can point to it on a map and knows the difference between Sunni and Shiite. You know, I said, and I've been there and I have contacts there. I'd like to go. And she told her, I said, at least let me go to Ground Zero and do some more serious stuff or interview the Muslim community in New York who are suffering from everything, you know. And she said, you were hired to entertain, not educate. I said, ooh, that's what I said. I said, mm, okay. So that day I left and I went to the Pakistan consulate and got a double entry visa. It was September seventeenth. I didn't know how I was going to get there or what I was going to do, but I was going to get to, back to Afghanistan. I ended up going for CNN. A um, wonderful man named Mason Jordan said, oh, because my connections were now, in." A, uh, it's a long story. But anyway, I went for CNN. I quit Fox. And CNN said, with just this one assignment, I know what you're leaving. And I said, no, just that's what I want to do. So I walked out of Fox, worked for CNN, and then came back and um, didn't have a job, but I was okay financially. And then Eason asked if I wanted to go to Iraq, which I had no interest in going because I didn't know about Iraq and I also didn't agree with what was happening in Iraq. And so now I found myself, hmm, I was paying for my mother's home. <laughs> I was, I was, I was. I had bought an apartment in New York like wow I gotta earn some money here. And I had a dog Mm. named Lulu who I would take for walks at Central Park and she'd come back so muddy and it made me crazy so I came up with the idea for the Paw Plunger. And that's how it happened and that was one of those follow through things. I I just came up with this idea, I got a backer and then it all happened. Mm.
0: Well, I mean, this is, this is bad on me for not knowing oh about God, your you know, travels ridiculous. to Afghanistan. No. Um, but somebody needs to update your Wikipedia page with all this.
1: Oh, oh gosh. I think people have, I will, people I will do people have better things I will, to do with their time than update me. It's okay.
0: <laughs> I will update that page with all this <laughs> stuff.
1: <laughs> I don't even know how to update my Wikipedia page.
0: Um, well, going back to, to, to sticking around, and, and we're kind of in the final stretch of things here, mm-hmm. but... One thing that Sticking Around got was it won a special award. It it got a Gemini. And what did you and Robin think of that at the time?
1: To be completely candid about it, Matthew, I didn't know it was a big deal. Robin was like, oh, "Oh my God, we won a Gemini. And I'm like, Gemini, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know because I didn't come from the world of animation. It was, we were thrilled. And then we were, Nelvana sent us to NIPCOM, um, where we were, I mean, we hadn't won it there, but we, we were like the number one show and we, and sticking around was on, on the cover of the MIPCOM magazine in St. Annecy. Uh, I, it was, and we were treated like royalty. It was like, wow. Yeah, it was, it was thrilling. And what I love the most about it is Robin, who is brilliant and, um, he's the animator. Um, and you know, I, I just thrilled that, We got such recognition and the team at Nelvana got such recognition. You know, it was just, it was, it was so nice to be recognized, you know, and that, that was good, but I had no plans on pursuing an animation career unless, you know, I came up with some other goofy idea (laughs) that, you know, I found a partner with and stuff, but, you know, I hope, I'm sure Robin's doing great things and, um, you know, that it's helped him quite a bit. Um, uh, and but honestly, sincerely, you talking about the impact "Sticking Around" had on you as a kid touched me so, and that is better mm. than any award.
0: Um, "Sticking Around" was on the air for about three seasons, three wonderful seasons to me. And as we talked about, you know, won a Gemini, which is a huge, you know, Canadian uh, award. Um, so I guess the question is with these accolades and, you know, how well the show was doing, why did it end?
1: I think it wasn't, um, well, I think the, not the climate, what's the word I'm thinking of? Things were changing so much in television and children's television. Mm -hmm. I, and I also think fundamentally children's cartoons, really, you only need to have a Especially specifically specific children's cartoons not like the Simpsons need three seasons Because your audience grows out of them By the time you're six to nine you might have moved on you know or nine to twelve and also sadly for the creators You don't I know the Simpsons, you know Matt Gehring gets residuals and so you don't get residuals as a creator <laughs> So it's very inexpensive television to keep replaying and replaying and replaying without making new. So it does make sense. Your audience grows up in a way and, you know, you can just keep airing it. I imagine, I hope, it's sticking around, it'll be coming back. I think it's been airing somewhere, maybe in the UK, I don't know, but it'll come back, but it won't cost any money. It's just, and it will still speak to the same age group. And the same kids. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you?
0: Yeah, it does. Certainly. I mean, uh, that's, I guess, an issue I've, I've come up with with some creators where, you know, there, there are issues around their intellectual property rights mm-hmm. and how much money they're actually able to make from mm-hmm. a show. And we had talked to, talked to a creator named uh, Steve Schneer, who was a, a creator of a show called Freaky Stories. Mm-hmm. And he had sold the show. And then he was like, but where's the money? Mm-hmm. And they're like, you're a creator. You're not going to get that much money. No, you don't. He's like, it's like, okay. So I, he still had to write for other shows and and do other directing and do all that all that kind of work. So I mean, it's it's kind of counter to the idea of what maybe a person who's on the outside may think of a creator, thinking like, oh yeah, it's like a Matt Groening who has yes. tons of money. So, but it's kind of the, the opposite for a lot of show Well, creators, it is.
1: If you don't... But Matt Groening created, again, because, you know, the S- Simpsons were created like Sticking Around was, his interstitials in the Tracy Ullman show. And Susan Grode
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, really negotiated a huge deal for him and was the first to do that, where I think he does get residuals or certain things. And voice actors in the um, Simpsons get residuals, I believe. Um, but that was, I think, a unique case. Maybe that will change. With us, we were actually, because I think Novana was a bit hungrier than the other studios might have been, which is one of the reasons we chose Novana. we were able to not get residuals, but we were able to get created by and consultants and produced by. We couldn't get executive producer, although the first year that's what we were doing in interstitials, Um, but it became this, you know, it's this whole bureaucratic thing that happens but we were happy to get what we got and we were paid well and, and we were just thrilled that it was being done, but you don't have a lot of power as a writer. (laughs) You, as a writer, as a creator, you, you kind of get bombarded with all the reasons why you're not going to have power. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting lesson. I don't know how much that's going to change. Uh, it's changed somewhat, but uh, it's, you know, you're not going to get rich doing it, but you will be enriched if what you're doing is what mm-hmm. you love, which is not going to put bread on the table, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can learn to make bread, I guess. Exactly. Um, I guess just as a final question. I mean, what do you think is the lasting legacy of sticking around?
1: Well, I think it's what you said to me, that you were touched by it. You remember these characters and it made you laugh and it was a safe place to go and a fun place to be. And I think that's sort of, that's sort of all what Robin and I wanted that just we wanted to create something that kids would enjoy and feel good about watching and and like and maybe see themselves in one of the characters. Or, oh, my God, that's just like my coach, or this is like that, or, you know, and then laugh, because it's tough to be a kid. So I, I and get some joy from it. That's huge. I can't, again, Yeah, I'm very, I was very touched that, of your reaction to it, because I've never heard anyone comment about it, except for in kind of the clinical way as a network executive or X, Y, and Z. And Okay. You know, so it's lovely.
0: Yeah. Always happy to talk about, you know, a, a show I love with an, a really interesting uh, creator like yourself. And I mean, with that, you know, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy. It makes me really happy that we you, we, you took this time and that, I don't know, it was a great chat.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend over the social media waves, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And stay tuned for our next episode.